I'm Sean Keaveney from BBC Radio 6 Music and you're listening to The Last Line with James Alban. Everybody and welcome to the first ever episode of The Last Line. My name is James Alban. I'm a filmmaker, writer and comedian and you can listen to me chat with an interesting individual every other week. So thank you very much for joining me and if you like what you hear there is much more to come over the coming months so do hit subscribe on iTunes and at youtube.com forward slash lastlinefilms. And if you're feeling extra generous then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash the last line and chuck us some of your hard-earned cash that goes towards helping the show keep going. So, who is the first to grace us with their presence? It is none other than broadcaster and host of the BBC Six Music Breakfast Show, Sean Keaveney. Sean has presented the Breakfast Show on Six Music since 2007 and you'll often hear him pop up on other stations such as Radio 2 and Radio 4, which you'll hear Sean mention later. Uh, Sean has also done stand-up comedy and has a podcast uh, exclusive to Spotify called Sean Keaveney's Show and Tell, which is uh, currently in its second series. I spoke to Sean back in early February at the offices of his agents and we covered everything from comedy influences, uh, dealing with criticism and delivering huge news to his radio audience. Uh, Sean was actually the second guest I interviewed for the podcast and as you will hear I had interviewed Jay Wilgoose Esquire from the band Public Service Broadcasting a couple of weeks before. Uh, I was very pleased with how my interview with Jay turned out and you'll hear it in the next episode but I was still feeling self-conscious about my interview technique so having an experienced broadcaster and Sean in front of me it's safe to say I was feeling a little apprehensive so I decided to ask him about his own interview style to see if I could pick up any tips. It's been an interesting experience for me, like doing the last one. Um, because I've, I've done documentaries before where I've interviewed people, but I found it a lot less sort of intimidating because I could sort of hide behind the camera and I could let them do things and then I can just ask questions whenever I'm not sat down and it's like now you've got to interview someone for an hour. Um, so that was an interesting experience last week because I was very conscious that he, he probably does a lot of interviews and he doesn't, I, I was conscious of not retreading the same ground all the time. And then coming to do you it was the same thought process that like I don't want to just ask him like, how did you get into radio and that kind of thing. But also there's the added pressure that you do interviews all the time. Mm. So oh, I don't know what your thought, thoughts on interviews are <laughs> just generally. On doing? On, di on well, on, on being either person, being interviewed yes. or being the person interviewing. Because it's two very different. It is, it's two, it's, I, I find, um, I find it 
I think that anybody who says that they don't like being interviewed is probably being a bit disingenuous because I think that, well, actually my, my missus hates it. But I think most people love nothing more than being asked about themselves and expanding on how unbelievably enlightened and interesting they are. It's just a human trait. You, lo you love talking about yourself. So I, I think that, and it's easier, it's great to be interviewed because you don't have to prep. Mm. And it, all, the, all the pressure is on you, James. No pressure on me. So I love being, I kind of love being interviewed. And, and I, I do like interviewing as well. I've, I fell into it. I remember doing my first few interviews, proper ones, about 13, 14 years ago when I used to work at this place called XFM. And I, was, I had a producer called Mick Meadows, who's still a good friend of mine. And he kind of, um, he was he's quite conventional, he was trying to ram certain rules into me, you know, always ask open questions. Uh, always ask a question that doesn't have a yes or no answer. And I was like, I, I was quite terrified of, of displeasing him, so I used to do that. And, but as time's gone on, of course, my interview style in inverted commas has just become all the things that he said don't do, really. Because the only thing that I've got in the locker is, um, if I do say so myself, uh, charm, uh, people, people warm to uh, the, the Keevney interview technique because it's just a chat, so they don't feel interviewed. That's mm. the only thing that I've got. It does mean that I'm not, I'm, technically I'm not very good at an interview because I don't draw out information particularly, I don't tease out things that, they, you know, but my friend Matt, who I do the show with, he's a consummate interviewer. And so if he's interviewing somebody like Michael Stipe or, you know, somebody like that, or, um, you know, Paddy Smith, he'll, he'll have a journalistic eye on what would be a good thing to tease out of them, but then we could use that as a sort of bit of click, not clickbait, but, you know, get yeah. people interested. Paddy Smith said that she, you know, she always thought that Robert Mapplethorpe was a terrible photographer or something. He's really good at getting bits that, whereas I just don't think about it. I don't have any process at all. I just talk. Does that ever like get you into tough spots though in interviews? If you've not prepped, because so do you prep then? I do know that to be fair to myself, I, I was just about to correct myself though, because I do prep. I definitely, I, in fact, I do quite a lot of prep. But what I find that I do, I don't know what you do, because I can see your, a bit of your prep there. You, mm. I, 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 especially if it's, it's somebody quite significant, you know, I, I will watch things, I'll, I'll remind myself of their, uh, you know, yeah. I'll read interviews that they've done, old ones, new ones. So I've got a lot on the hard drive of my, my old noggin. But then, and, and I write a lot of questions down, but I very rarely then reference those questions because right. I, I feel, I need to, the, the weird thing, I just feel like I have to maintain eye contact all the time. I don't still think I'm not listening. And so that means I just hardly ever look at my questions. I'm like, and consequently I have missed some perlers over the years. So I can't remember the specifics, but like I've definitely come out of interviews with people and gone, I forgot to ask my, the big question. So I need a bit of practice. I've only been doing it about 13 years. I need a bit, another 13 years, I should be all right at it. Because I tried last week, I was, I I made much more extensive notes, and the notes were a lot. They were sort of a lot longer 
Well, there's you know, a lot more of... to talk about with a musician like Jay Will Goose. You know, I mean, with me, I just talk bollocks on the radio. There's not much to go at. Well, I think I think I tried to. I don't know. I found quite a lot. I, I digged. <laughs> Can't wait. Um, I. I think I just, I wrote a load of questions, like you said, I wrote specific questions and I wrote specifically the way I was going to word them, but when it came to actually doing the the interview, I was sort of tied, I felt a bit tied to them. Mm. So I thought maybe if I'm more... Fluid. Nimble. With the situation. Yeah. That's exactly right, I think. I think that what it is, is, is understanding that your prep is your security blanket for, and it, that is the thing you fall back on. And, and if you can have a conversation, if you can open a conversation with somebody and, and get them on side, and get that, then they start opening up like a flower, you know. Mm. And then you don't have to worry because that's what a conversation is, isn't it? You know, we don't sit there chatting to our mums and go, I, want, I think the next uh, inquiry will be about what's for tea, which would be sexist anyway. You should be making your own tea. But, you know, so once that conversation's rolling, you don't really need your notes that much. And then, and then they're there if you if you do mess up. Yeah, I was wondering if you've had any. Has there ever been any like really difficult interviews? Mm-hmm. Oh God! I, you don't actually have to. Oh, I will name, name check. check I will. I okay. will. I'll be happy to. I found your. Um, you did a speech at Leeds Trinity University. Did you see that? You have done some research. Yeah, found it on on the YouTube. <laughs> did I talk about Bobby Gillespie? No, you talk, talked about your interview with John Cleese, which wasn't John Cleese being difficult. It no, was it you screwed up your timings. Oh, and that was... it's so there, somewhere in my memory banks, there, there are a few dozen of these experiences probably, but only a few spring to mind because I think you bury a lot of it. Mm. To be honest, I, most of them have been fantastic. Um, well, naturally. That's... <laughs> obviously, because of what I'm saying. Um, because because it's you know it's just it's easy and it's fun isn't it really talking to people is great um, but there are times when because of lack of preparation you get screwed like the John Cleese incident was for anybody who might be listening and, and their interest peaked that was just and ironically was a very um, Basil Faultyish situation because I'd had weirdly at the time I was doing stuff for Five Live. Uh, and f- for, for reasons best known to the producers, they were going to link up to, to us at Six Music Live at a certain point, <laughs> which meant my producer had to come in and dial up and be ready, and I was going to be a contributor, you know, on the show. And not only that, they to add pressure, they'd sent a couple of um, guests to us at Six Music as well. So we were doing like a Six Music Five Live link up, and they were going to sort of interview us down the line. Emily Sunday was one of them. I'll never forget it. And uh, but it all went horribly wrong because John Cleese turned up twenty minutes late for his pre-recorded interview with me for Six Music, which meant that we had about nine-minute window. Emily Sunday and some other geezer, some botanist or something, turn up. They're, they're pacing about outside, looking, pointing at the watches. Going, I'm going to be on there in five minutes, and I have to basically packing an entire lifetime interview with John Cleese in eight minutes and push him out of the door. And he was literally just taking his jacket off, you know, he's like, <laughs> we've only just started. I was like, I'm just so sorry, John, it's not, I, this doesn't usually happen to me. So that was awkward. But the, the, most of the time, people are just phenomenally nice and just, like I said, people love talking about themselves. 
you know, sometimes it's funny that comedians aren't always the best people to chat to. Often they are. Sometimes, you know, comedians are quite shy, mm. often off, off mic, and they, don't, they can't sit there and talk to you about what's in their show. They can't just sit there and reel off a lot of jokes. So often it doesn't leave you much to talk about. So you can find, ironically, that comedians can be hard to chat to. Reginald D. Hunter is a comedian who I interviewed once, and he holds the crown, I think, as by far the rudest person that I've ever met. Really? He was unbelievably rude. I don't know what had gone on in Reginald's life that morning. But that it feels to me as though when somebody's that rude, right. I feel that something has happened to make them that rude. I don't yeah. know if he's always like that, but he was, he was horrendously rude that day. That's interesting. I would point you towards um, the Comedian's Comedian podcast oh. with Stuart Goldsmith because he did an interview with Reginald D. Hunter that's about an hour, hour and a half long. And he talks about how he went through this sort of bleak time for himself. And like, he talks about how it affected his material and how it affected him as a person. So maybe that yes. might just to enlighten. enlighten you a little bit, that might, that might if, it, if the times match up, that might be I think I'm going to, I am actually going to seek that out, James, because I, I, it was, it was one of the, you can tell, you know, as a, you think, you're obviously going through some shit. Yeah. You're taking it out on me, but it was, it was a bad one. And so, you know, you get the odd one like that, but nearly everybody else is, is phenomenal to, you know, it's just a nice, I've been doing um, a bit of radio, I've been doing a little bit of Radio 4 recently, um, and that's been a fantastic experience because you get to talk to these really unusual people who've done unusual things that are, you, we wouldn't get on Six Music Breakfast. So, mm. you know, like the, a, a gentleman who wrote a book about climbing the trees of the world or, you know, pe or people who've had really traumatic events in their life, you know, it's all this, and you get to talk to them about it and it's really interesting. So at my advanced age, it's nice to do any, be allowed to do anything that's a bit different. You know? Does that change your approach then when you, if, if you're interviewing someone just about their music career, when you go to Radio 4 and you're doing something with someone who's been through something mm. terrible or, you know, there's just a really like sort of important piece of... It is harder. I find it hard because I'm quite a flippant person. Not in real life, but that's kind of what people know. Your tone. My tone yeah. is, oh, you know, he's just having a laugh, isn't he? He does silly voices and then he plays a record. So it's hard for me to change tone and to be m more authoritative or... But you have to find that. Yeah, you have, to, you have to do that, especially if somebody's had a horrible experience or... But that's what I mean. That's what's really good about it. It sort of brings out a, a slightly more mature part of what you do, I suppose. <laughs> Funny you should say about your flippant tone. I was, because I got to your office like really early. I was sat in the reception, so I thought I'll do some last minute Googling. And so I put in Sean Keaveney into Google and I was just scrolling through it. And then I found this petition online and it was um, get Sean Keaveney removed from Six Music. And the, the paragraph was all about how you were too flippant oh and, and he, he doesn't take it seriously enough. 
you know how many people uh, supported that particular? Ten. Ten people. <laughs> you got ten people that, d- that want you off. <laughs> they probably still do, don't they, as well? He's probably galling them. Because it was from like 2013 yeah. as well, so they're probably sat there like four or five years later going, he's still, still not there. off. That petition didn't work. The flippant bastard. I mean, I I don't think I don't think you need to base the rest of your radio career on, on those ten on those ten people. That's part of the problem, though, as you will or will be getting to know if you don't already know that, especially in this world of social media, you, you you're exposed to so much criticism. It's just right in front of you. So, and that's what is hard at Radio Four, funnily enough. But at Six Music, I have my wonderful producers Phil and Zara, who. Uh, it fed through them and then they give me on paper which is recycled uh, you know the missives from the listeners so they, they, they filter it where it's a radio for it's just on the screen in front of you and that's pretty dangerous you, you have to get a, a pretty thick hide pretty quickly you know because right. you just see the criticism who is this Sean Keaveny who doesn't even know how to pronounce Shakespearean names properly. If he's going to stay on Radio 4, he's going to have to learn fast. You know, that was one of the tamer ones. But you've just got to, you've got to get, just got to, get yeah. with it. Does it bother you though? Like when you see that? Because like, That one didn't, but there are, I've got to be honest, I'm pretty thin skinned. Really? Yeah. I am that not, surprises me. Does Because it? you don't come across, I don't think you come across that way. I think maybe it is because of your sort of flippant tone. Mm. You come across as quite like, I Don't feel, care. like you'd be like, ah, fine, whatever. But I'm not like, like that. You do your own thing, sort of thing. I do find it, uh, it's annoying to me. One of my good old mates is uh, Al Murray, the pub landlord, mm. and he's kind of the opposite. He's, he loves to get right into it. And he'll just open up his Twitter and say something that he knows he's gonna get a reaction sometimes. And then he just, he'll, he'll go in you know, all elbows, and just start marauding with people. And you know, he's, yeah. he just loves it. He loves the rough and tumble. It's water off a duck back to him, whereas I'm, I'm not like that. So and when you do an early programme like we do, you're particularly exposed, I think, at that time of the day. Everybody's a bit more... Like you haven't got any skin, you know, you're really vulnerable. And so if you're feeling particularly tired and vulnerable, and then, like the thirty fourth email you open is something like, "I suppose you think you're funny, don't you?" These are the worst. Do you get ones. a lot of that? Not a lot. Not any. Because the thing is, when you've been doing something eleven years, people they should know. Yeah, they? they should know by now if they like it or not. So, fuck off. But I'm, like but I'm surprised by the. I don't. I don't know why people feel the need to do it really because it. it, it it's not, you're not going to go, oh, I'll stop then. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not, it's, what's the point? <laughs> it's a waste of energy. But then it's not, because to them, it, I've, I understand it now, it's a catharsis to them, and it's part of your service to them, really, is to allow that to happen. And so that's part of the contract of the broadcaster. You should be not only ready for it, but I intellectually I know this you should be not only ready for it but you should be happy to, to do it mm. because obviously everybody isn't going to like you it would be really weird and so you should be thankful that they're listening that you've said something that's annoying to them yeah. it's like oh you've got a reaction there's nothing worse than if you, you'd have to be so boring wouldn't you for people to just be like 
Oh, yeah. He's on. Yeah, he's on. The professional thing to do is to ignore. That's what you're supposed to do. But I don't do But it makes quite good radio if you do respond. There are some... We had a really funny one about two weeks ago where it was... Um, it, it was a guy who... Well, actually, no. I think we had one a few weeks ago, which was like virtually the first email that we opened up after Christmas. <laughs> it was just this... Like literally, 2nd of January, you know, this litany of quite a few things that we, like to like, like he was my manager and right, he needed yeah. to unpack a few of the things that we were doing wrong. It was like, this is brilliant. First day back, you know. And then we got one of criticising our use of the Hill Street Blues theme tune. And that was a good example of what you're talking about because we, when you do a breakfast show, when you do 15 hours of live work, radio a week, you run out of material very fast. So everything becomes material. That's the only thing you need to know. So somebody sending a critical email about one of your beds is, is manna from heaven, because then we just went mad on it. Mm. Just like, well, John thinks that it's an absolute <laughs> outrage that we're playing this Hill Street Blues thing. Um, so we're having, you know, we'll have a moratorium on it. We had, we had a referendum on it. Mm. You know, hashtag save Hill Street Blues, hashtag destroy Hill Street Blues, you know. You know. And it, people still talking about it now, it's ridiculous, but people kind of begin to own your radio programme after a while. I had a guy come up to me at an awards ceremony two days ago, with sort of a quiver in his voice, he said, I'm David, I just want to say thank you for bringing the Hill Street Blues bed back. Mm -hmm. Just daft shit, you know. But yeah, so you, you, can, you can use it if you're feeling confident and happy, uh, the criticism, and you, it won't really affect you. And then there are other days when you feel hurt by it, and you and, and then I, sometimes I will craft an email. I'm very sorry to hear that you think that I dealt with that situation flippantly. I, you know, I, I disagree with the concept that I am, uh, you know, one of the unfunniest people in the world, and that I should be sad I was born. But, the, but I, you know, and you you've overexposed yourself a bit. Then you see, yeah, you've gone into it too much. I guess the Hill Street Blues guy is probably actually quite liked that you picked it. He probably liked that. Because I've been listening to a lot of um, uh, Ian Lee, you know, oh, yeah. tour radio. I used to work with Ian, he's lovely man. The, the first couple of days and listened to it, I was like, why do these people keep bringing up? They, <laughs> they hate Ian Lee, they keep telling him how much they don't like him. But I think they enjoy the... The badinage of it. Yeah. Well also, I, I haven't listened to him for, I've, I've got to get back into it because he's on at whatever time he's on and I miss each other, but he makes characters out of people, doesn't he? I think yeah. that's what he does. And one of my very good old friends, Barry from Watford, is a regular on that show. And sounds like they're doing a little bit of building work downstairs. And uh, that's what I think Ian's genius is. He, he, he spots somebody you know, angry van man or something mm. like that. And he just thinks, right, well, when the next time he comes on, we'll, we'll have him again and we'll, we'll, we'll carry on the argument or whatever. Yeah. And he's, he, he's somebody who's, he's thin and thick skinned at the same time, Ian, I think, because he talks very openly about his struggles with depression and things. So I know that he's vulnerable at times, but then he just puts himself in the firing line. Because your your radio show is very comedic and 
was there any sort of was there ever any sort of influence in the way you approached it or was it always just, you just naturally sat down and was like this is what I do or I think that like what I, what's a bit odd is that I I'm always a little bit embarrassed to talk about radio influences because I didn't have all that many really but I I always loved the medium right and always listened intently to you know me and my uncle Martin used to He's only two years older than me. It's a northern thing. You know, we had like little Ferguson tape recorders and we used to do all that pretend radio show bollocks, you know. And then in the 70s, there were these people called the Baron Knights who were like a sort of comedy, uh, like a sort of comedy pop group who did like funny songs and things, you know, little sketches and we thought that was funny. But the, all, all the rest of it was stuff like Morecambe and Wise and Les Dawson so it was comedy more than... It was personas that got me, like, <clears throat> I think looking back on it, it didn't seem that at the time, but like somebody like Eric Morecambe or somebody like Les Dawson, and people, especially my boss, would always say, as a compliment, I, you, you know, I think I always think of Les Dawson when, when, when you talk, because you have that kind of crumpled, northern, mm. defeated man, hangdog expression, really pissed off to be there, unimpressed. And, 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 and so all that f fed in, I think. And my dad, actually, my dad was a massive influence because he's, he's a funny fucker, you know. He's very, he's, to this day, he's very, he's, he, my kids find my dad like the funniest man on earth, as still, I pretty much do. Uh, but and then it was all my mates actually, who were still all a bunch of very funny people, and we'd we'd and my brother and you know we'd all hang out together and, and have sort of unconscious competitions as who could be funniest. So that all fed in, and I think so when I got to have a, a, a do at it doing overnights, when no fuckers listening, the only people that are listening at three a.m. Mm. are ill people really you know I don't, I mean, that's not being unple that's not being un unpleasant that's kind of true you get a, your share of the audience is very small or there just aren't that many people out there but if you think about what what kind of people what kind of state are they in at three or four o'clock in the morning yeah they're either doing a very antisocial job like you or they might be in a hospital ward or something they might you know. so you know that, yeah. that madness there's sort of madness to that time of day goes back to the Ian Lee thing, doesn't it? Yeah. So the people ringing up, you can tell there's, for some of them, it's like their only outlet is to call on. Yeah, and that, I'm really, so I was really sympathetic to that, chatting to them, you know. But but yeah, so that influence-wise, it wasn't, somebody like Terry Wogan or Steve Wright, actually, but, you know, I, I, I think those guys are past masters at doing what they do. And... Uh, even though these days some people might say they're cheesy or whatever, they just think that they are. If you're in radio, you should be in it for the rest of your life, really, and right. be like wallpaper. It's not like you know being a YouTube sensation yeah. or something. It's like you're fucking, you're there for till they put you in the box. You're in the box in the corner of the room, and then you die, and they put you in the other box, and then you you know that's when your career ends. That's what I think. So you, you envision doing it for... Partially because I need the money and I haven't got any. And I've, uh, you know, I've, I've spunk whatever money I had. So I have to keep working. 
Uh, and I, but I also want to, yeah, luckily. Yeah. Watching your university oh, yeah. lecture, do you say you did a six hour show? Yeah, I did. I've done them all, mate. I've done them all. I've, we worked out that the only slot that I haven't done is one till 3 a.m. in the morning. So I've done all the other ones. Pardon, pardon my chair as I move. Um, and, and my first ever gig was at XFM. And it was a Sunday night into Monday morning, and it was midnight till 6 a.m. And that was That's a long, that's a long time to talk for. I can't believe I did it now. I, I think there's a shoebox somewhere that's got a few snoops, as we call them in the biz, which I'd love to dig out. Because that's like a punishment beating, isn't it? Six, six hours. Six hours. Of, of and, and again, it's like, I, I'm Northern, you know, I've had, I've had proper jobs, my, you know, my, my uncle was worked down a mine. I un- I understand. I'm not a blessed life person, but six hours. But when you talk for six hours, you get to you get to four a.m. and you just yeah. you're going absolutely nuts. So that was that was painful. Yeah, sounds painful. <laughs> um, so you talk about how um, how some people view sort of like Wogan and Steve Wright as like cheesy, and I guess some people would say they sort of fall into like the cliche radio presenter mm. shtick, um, which is sort of what like Alan Partridge. Mm. Do you ever worry about becoming Partridge-esque yeah. or, <laughs> because, and I love Alan Partridge. I, I love Alan Partridge. I really like your radio show. Mm. I don't think there's anything wrong with going a bit Partridge-esque sometimes because I have noticed there are, there are times where you do the sort of complicated ways of telling the time and stuff which is something you know it's a partridge partridge-esque thing do, do you worry about that or do you just sort of go well this is what I do and I love it. it doesn't matter I, I think that first of all I think what's amazing is like you take somebody like Steve Wright you know I mean you've got other legends I work with them all you know Marianne Hobbs and Lauren and uh, Steve Lamack and you know Matt Radcliffe, you know the radio behemoths. But you take somebody like Steve Wright. There's an amazing. You remember, you know Chris Morris, of course, the yeah. great comedian, comic writer, etc. And he did Day to Day, and he did Blue Jam, and all these iconic, untouchably brilliant brass eye and everything. He and he, I remember listening to some radio he sketched that he did 20 years ago. And it was a piss take of Steve Wright and his posse, you know. And it must have been a piss take of when Steve Wright was on Radio 1 25 years ago or something. And Chris Morris is eviscerating him, ripping the piss out of him. Who is this clown with his posse clapping when when a guest comes in, speaking inanities, playing, you know, Johnny H. Jazz. And that that was a funny sketch. Fast forward to now... Steve's do it, still doing it. Yeah. I still listen to it and I love it. Yeah. And it's, so it's travelled beyond cheese into a different realm, which is, for, you know, for a younger audience, they won't listen to that. They'll, they'll be on whatever they're on, one extra Spotify or, you know, streaming shit on YouTube or whatever the fuck. I don't know. I'm 45. But so uh, cheese doesn't exist to me. It's like, you, you know, my friend Sean Rowe used to do Guilty Pleasures, those nights where it was like, like Guilty Pleasures Night, let's play the cheesy music. We've gone past that now as well, because yeah. streaming and everything. Because everything now, like, oh, okay, play, so you can, 
nothing's cheesy to me anymore. And so, but on our show, we, by accident, by dint of not being sacked for 11 years, miraculously, we've just created a world by accident. We've just, a bit like Ian did, and like Kenny Everett would have done it, or, you know, back in the day. If you stay in one place for long enough, you get all these little repetitive jokes that listeners remind you if you forget, and then you, you do it for them, and then you just keep doing it, and it's, it becomes like a culture that is your show. Mm. And then that's great, because you don't have to do much then. You just rock up. I've got my cart wall, which has got like seven billion bits of fucking audio on it. But the listeners know what, the, what buttons to press and what jokes to throw at me. And then we just play. So it's great. So, so you never worry about don't worry anything about like that. I, I, and we do it on purpose. You know, we do the, the dumbest, stupidest things. Like, uh, I, I mean, I can never remember the most recent ones, but you know, we 64046 is our text number. And it, it's like a catchphrase and a punchline now, you know, how much yeah. changes in your pocket, 64046. You know, like today, for some, we did a little small claims court special where I said I saw Christian Slater. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just, I just know instinctively that I can get 20 minutes out of that, which you need. So it's like, have you ever seen Christian Slater when he's not been standing next to a door? And then you get five yeah. stories out of it. Even when he's in Glengarry and Ross, he's yeah. sitting next yeah. to the door. Yeah. Stupid. But that's it. That's radio. Because I, because I, when I say it's slightly partridge-esque, I don't mean that in a in a bad way at all. No. Because I feel like when I listen to it, I feel like you know you're you're going down that route, and it's it's all part it's of knowing, the, isn't it? Yeah, it's I think knowing. if you if you're doing it and you you're just one of those guys who thinks that's how you should be a radio DJ, I think that's. That's what, you know, because Smashy and Nicey and Alan Partridge, so that in the, in the, and that's what radio was like. There are certain DJs who I will not mention by name because I'm not that guy who, they're still occasionally employed on the national networks to fill in for really great DJs and presenters who are stuck in 1985, yeah. who you can imagine have got the bomber jacket from the Radio 1 Roadshow and they've got the quiff and they probably drive a jag. And yeah. It's all a little bit like that, you know. And, they, and, and, and there's a bitterness. If you dr drill down a tiny bit, there will be bitterness yeah. there. Like that kind of, well, the laughing stock now, but uh, I used to have a helicopter in 1991. <laughs> and it's all that stuff. And it's yeah. those guys that have the patriots out of them rightly. Noel Edmonds, I, I think I probably am quite comfortable in naming, yeah. as being a man who has passed from, he's passed way beyond parody now into a, a realm of, are you okay, mate? You know? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, like he's apparently set up, you must have seen the story, he's got his own website, Positively No. And a whole, he's got like his own <laughs> mini. his website yeah. Positively, Positively No. And he's got like his own mini spoof radio station that is dedicated to taking the piss out of Lloyd's bank because they've pissed him off for some reason so he's he's trolling them yeah it's like you are giving so much energy to this you're supposed to be a positive guy yeah but you're giving all your energy to this negativity it's weird it's so he's odd he, yeah. you know but but yeah we're not like that we know that we're a bit shit and that's that's the, that's a powerful knowledge. but i think if someone was actually like alan partridge if you listen to it and go that is alan partridge it would be painful to listen to rather than an amusing. Yes. Because you've got to know as a comedian, 
you're a nascent comedian, the, the joke's on you, haven't you? You've got to, A, you've got to punch up. That's just the rule, the, yeah. the rule for me. You've always got to be the weaker one who's having a go at the multinational or something. You know, I, I can take the, I can rip the piss out of Elon Musk all I like because he's a multi-billionaire. He doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm a tick on his ass. You know, I'm nothing to him. So I can, I can joke with him all I like. So that's the, that's the only rule I ever have, you know. There are certain comedians I've heard who punch, I've heard them punching down, but tone is very important, I think. going down the YouTube rabbit hole and I found a clip where you announced the death of David Bowie on air and not to ask you about the death of David Bowie because what, what can, you know what can you say about mm. but um, I just wondered what what kind of what kind of the processes the sort of atmosphere in the office when you get a piece of news like that that you know is going to affect a lot of people listening, whether it be a famous person dying or you know, a horrible, yeah, or a disaster of some yeah. description. How do, how does how does that work in the studio when you have to announce these sort of things? I was just intrigued. Well, I mean, at the BBC, you've got an advantage because you've got journalistic um, propriety on your side. So the B, I don't. You probably everybody probably knows this, but. It's often perceived that the BBC is slow with news, but that's because certain other news, international news outlets, are a bit less bothered about the accuracy of what they report. So they, they, they go by that never wrong for long sort of maxim of, mm. well, we'll just publish it. He's dead. Well, we've heard that he might be dead. We'll publish it. We can always yeah. retract it later. But the BBC, we don't do that. It's all proper. And Matt Everett, who does our music news is an amazing journalist as well and he knows everybody and he at that particular morning you're describing that was a massive shock to everybody including us and we know in particular Matt is very close to David Bowie's people right so if anybody would have known he was ill and he was it would have been Matt probably but it was that tight a circle no fucking you so that was one of those situations where literally five minutes before we went on air, Duncan Jones, David's um, son, tweeted something. It's like, well, he's not pulling anybody's pud there, is he? It must have happened. But we, we yeah. had to sort of sit on it for a bit and check and check and check. So we played two songs instead of one to start the show, which piqued everybody's... Because that's the other thing about any kind of radio show, people get used to the rhythm of it. Yeah. And if anything's slightly different than usual, like, what the fuck's going on? Yeah, because you apologise that for, in that clip. I don't. Oh right, I, don't don't I must not heard it since. But, um, but you apologise. You you say, uh, you know, I'm sorry. We we played a couple of extra songs there because we had to get things in order. Oh, yeah, so. I remember now. Yeah. But it was, it, it's very, you don't think of it like it's a responsibility in a, in a way. You just go into, I suppose you would say, to be flippant again, you go into orbit mode, really. And again, that's about tone. When you do a, a radio production, you, you can go from 
being jokey to being quite serious very quickly if you yeah. need to. But when it's something really serious, you've got to come into it slowly. You know, you put on a slower song. You 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 make make sure there's a gap between the last time you made a fucking dick joke or something, so that you can set the tone again. And that morning was, you know, obviously everybody in the studio is a massive Bowie fan anyway, but and Matt in particular is, and he quite close to the circle of trust. So it, he's like, yeah, he's, he's, he's dead, you know, so we've got to do this. And, um, and then it, what's good about it is it becomes a community. That's when you realize that your listeners are a community, on, uh, virtual, and the outpouring begins. And, yeah. and then all you are then is you're a cipher, you're just uh, reading out emails and you're people's memories. And, and then it's, it, it got a little bit like, the nearest I got to a comparison was you know, when Lennon died and everybody was at Central Park, it was like a, a radio version of that for us. We were, somebody's clapping me downstairs. Um, <laughs> it was like a radio version of that where everybody came together. And, and I still get, after two, two odd years, I still get people coming up going, you know, thanks for being there for that. And you're like, don't, don't thank me, because it was just, yeah. I was there. I wasn't going to, I had anything else to do but that. But there are other times when, I'll never forget when 9-11 uh, happened and I was at XFM then and I think that a gentleman called Christian O'Connell was doing the breakfast show and I think he did an amazing job the day after that because he's just like me, a flippant dickhead breakfast show, knockabout broadcaster, but he did a very good job of being completely serious and I think that's a, the, the mark of a good broadcaster, you, you can't just... It's not all about getting a laugh, you know, certainly on a day like that. Yeah. So you've got to find it in yourself to be, because that's your armour, being, being silly. And sometimes you've got to put it down and be vulnerable and stuff, you know. So that's quite a good opportunity to do that. It's funny when you say that it, you kick into auto, sort of autopilot mode, because I, I would have thought it would, it would almost throw you off, you know, and suddenly you're like, Hang on, I've got yeah. to. But it's interesting that you say you just you just kick in naturally into. You do, and it's a bit like when people say, "Well, how come you don't? How can you not swear? You swear so much in real life." There's a different switch, isn't it? Yeah. Like I never used to swear in front of my mum and dad. I'd swear in the playground. It's just the same. Your brain has circuits that flick on yeah. and off, and and when somebody dies or. Like, it happens all the time, obviously. Like, Matt will come in to do his music news, and he does a very... We've got this kind of sixth sense between us now. And uh, every so often, he'll come in, and he'll just do a thing where he'll just go, sad face. Like, and that is all he has to say. Like, he's signalling to me, don't do any dick jokes before I start, because I've got some sad news to impart. And then you change the tone, and then... And then, but then you can bring it up again, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's just a subtle thing. Yeah, it's funny actually. Um, I was when I was back for Christmas. I so I try not to swear in front of my parents, <laughs> but it just comes out sometimes. And we were watching. So you know, you know those sort of those Channel Five programs where it's like hundreds oh, celebrity yeah. embarrassing. Moments. Yeah, Justin Bieber came on the television and I meant to say oh he's such a cock yeah. but I said the other C word oh, in front you. of my mum in front of your mum 
Did it go down? No. Well, I did the very, as soon as I said it, I was like, I didn't mean yeah. to say that. I'm so sorry. But my mum was, wasn't happy. The hasn't let go of it. it. Hasn't let go of it still, either. Still, she sees you in a different light now. Yeah. It's it, you've changed. besmirched your innocent. You're, yeah. not, you're not her little boy anymore. No. I, don't, I actually, in all my years, I don't think I've, and I've been through a divorce. And I don't think I've said the C word in front of my mother. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it just came out. But that's what Because I don't even usually say it either, which was, so it was even more shocking because I don't, <laughs> I don't say it that, I don't really say it. It's Bieber that It's just that bit, and you Bieber of all people. Like I don't really even have that stronger feeling towards Justin Bieber. Like. But it was probably one of those little stories about how much of a massive C word he was being. Yeah. But I think, I think, that on a separate note, I think that semantically, that's the right word. I think that this that word is fascinating to me. Yeah. Still to this day, because it's the only word that has any power that's left. Yeah, people you can still, still gasp. Really, when... really um, offend people. Yeah. People you think are unoffendable, and then it might pop out, and that. They're in tears, or they're calling the police. Yeah, yeah. It's like fucking hell. Like it's weird. It just it's just the weirdness of me saying, I went to say cock, but I said the other c word. Like, why can't? Why wouldn't you just? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, say it. It's kind of it's kind of a strange. And some people are really sensitive about it. other people. Just bandy it about. Like, yeah. People you wouldn't expect, like Mother Teresa, was mad on it. <laughs> mad on it. Before we wrap up. When I asked you about interviews, you said, oh, did I tell the Bobby Gillespie story? So I'm now intrigued about what the Bobby Gillespie story is. Oh, God. That's up there. I bet that's somewhere, you know. I'm sure somebody whacked it on YouTube or something. But it's worth... It's a masterclass in terrible interviewing. So I'd not been doing the breakfast show that long. And Bobby was coming in to talk about a new record that he'd done. And I'll never forget it. He came in, and I met him outside, put a long record on or something, I went out to greet him. Because Bobby can be spiky, he just can't, you know, he's got a reputation yeah. for that. So I went out to see him and his lovely PR person, and he said something, he, he was looking a bit, like I might be getting the not happy Bobby, you know, at this point. And uh, he, he was perfectly pleasant though, and he said, he had his phone with him and he was like, oh, my, my missus is, keeps ringing me. I'll tell her, is it phones off in the studio? He said or something. I said, yeah, but don't worry about it. And then he came, we came through together and we started. And if you listen to the interview, I can't listen to it again because it's a terrible interview. I'm asking him, I, use, I will use the word flippant again. It's the only word that's wor that, that works. It, flippant questions around trying to I'm making sort of really dumb jokes about the title of his album and stuff like this. And to be fair to him, he's, he's, he's suffering it for a while. But he keeps fiddling about with his phone, because his phone's and he's like, oh, my missus keeps fucking trying to ring me and all this. And, and I must have asked him one too many dumb questions and he started being, then it, it just turned the, 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 the atmosphere, you know. And then he said something like, oh, that's a really stupid question though, isn't it? And I was like, well, and then me, instead of acknowledging that it was a stupid question, I was a little bit like, oh, well, it's all right, yeah. bit, bit defensive. Or something. We put a song on, and then he just sort of, while the song was on, he's like, 
and it's not really working this is it not finding this fun at all and I was like oh, no, if you don't like it I, I guess you could just leave he's like alright <laughs> he just got up and left <laughs> and that was the end of that and, and, and for ages like being the dick that I was then we kind of talked about it on air you know Bobby Gillespie you know, so I did, never said anything out loud about it but I, implying that maybe he was being a bit starry and then it was only when I listened back to it I was like I would have walked out of that situation. If really? Because I, I was acting like a total dick. So I'm going to have to find it now. Yeah, yeah. I should. I, maybe I'll, on my 11th anniversary in April, I'll just replay it all in all its painful <laughs> detail. Just for fun. Just for fun. But yeah, it, this has been a lot more uh, productive than that. Well, I'm glad that you think so. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It's nice, okay. to, as I said at the beginning, to talk about this one. So there you have it, Sean Keaveney. My thanks to Sean for doing the show and his advice on giving a good interview. And thanks to you, the listener, for joining us this week. I do hope you come back next time when I'll be having another interesting conversation, this time with Jay Wilgis Esquire from the band Public Service Broadcasting. Uh, remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a, a rating and a review. And head over to youtube.com forward slash lastlinefilms where you can uh, watch clips of the show and also check out some of the films I've made over, over the last couple of years as well. And that that is really worth doing. That's really worth your time. And if you really want to be part of the Last Line team, then you can go and donate to the show at patreon.com forward slash thelastline. There's perks there for doing it. And it's much appreciated and really helps uh, to keep the show going. So, until next time, I've been James Albarn and this is The Last Line.